Well, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to Tage Chewing, uh, episode number thirteen. Lucky thirteen. Um, we've dubbed this month uh, Jam Pack June for Page Chewing because Steve and I have a bunch of amazing uh, interviews scheduled. Uh, so once again, I'm PL Story here with the, the wonderful Steve Talk Whoops on his channel. And today we have a very special guest. Um, you're gonna forgive me while I gush and have a fanboy moment here because. It's Miles Cameron, so you know Miles um, Cameron obviously uh, is a well-known author, and uh, you know someone who uh, I've looked up to his work for a long time. Um, I'll let him talk uh, more about that, but he is the author of one of my all-time favorite series, which is the Trader Sun Cycle. And you're gonna have to forgive me again. You have to let me have this quick moment, which includes the Red Knight, <laughs> the Fell Sword. The Dread Worm. Oh my goodness, you own them all. The Plate of Swords. And the epic inclusion, The Fall of Dragons. So, oh yeah, I, I own them all. They have, a, they have a place of prominence on my shelf. So, welcome, Miles Cameron to Page Trick. Thank you so much for coming. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. And Paul, I just want to start by saying I love to Drowned Kingdom. I've already said that on Twitter, but I think it's the best fantasy novel I read this year. And I'm sorry that I'm behind, but um, oh and I'm going to make a shocking admission, and I apologize to all fantasy readers everywhere. But because I write so much and because I do so much research, I actually don't read a ton of fantasy. I used to read 75 to 150 fantasy novels a year, and now I think I'm at 15 to 20. Um, and that's because I have like stacks of research books that I have to get through to, to get my stuff done. And so I'd like to apologize to it. There's so much good stuff out there. So many traditionally published, so many indie published. And I sometimes I find it confusing. And it's one of the reasons I love shows like this is like I actually need fantasy curated for me, just like everyone else. Um, there's so much coming at me. And I'm just so glad that Janie Wirtz said, you should really read this because like, wow, that was like this year's best recommendation. So anyway, the love is mutual, Paul. Don't you worry about a thing. Um, I'm honored. Thank you so much. And Danny, of course, is fantastic. Another iconic writer who, you know, I look up to. Steve and I were privileged to have her on as well on a previous uh, episode. So I encourage you, Miles, if you haven't seen that one, uh, you know, Jenny, you, you listen to her for five minutes and you feel like you can write 50 novels a year. Yeah, right? And, uh, an idea a minute. And listen, one of the first things I want to ask you, because I get to interview you back, is... Have you read any Dorothy Dunnett? I have not. Okay, so um, you know Lois McMaster Bujold. So she says that Dorothy Dunnett is like one of the greatest writers of all time. And, um, uh, oh, suddenly her name has gone out of my mind. The Sparrow, science fiction novel about Jesuits in space. First oh, um, oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, anyway. I know what you're talking about. Uh, also a big Dorothy Dunnett fan, and uh, I'm a huge Dorothy Dunnett fan. I think I, I learned see. to write from Dorothy Dunnett. Hmm. So I would like to I would like to extend to you, Paul, the invitation. Uh, when you're sitting in my backyard, I'll just hand you one. But I think she's one of the greatest writers of the English language. She never wrote fantasy, but a lot of her s historical fiction is very like fantasy, like astrology works. So where's the borderline between historical fantasy and historical fiction? Anyway... I, I'd, I'd be honored, and and she's definitely 
someone who I feel that I need to read. Jenny's mentioned her before as well. So um, I will not refuse if you hand me a, a Dorothy Donna book. So uh, thank you so much. Um, but I wanted to, to start this this podcast by, so Steve, um, you ever watched like, you ever seen those Dosaki beer commercials? You seen those ones yeah. with like, they feature the most interesting man in the world, that, that character. Well, I think that's what we have here, having Miles Cameron. Like, I, you know, Miles, I, and, and please correct me if I, if I get any elements of, of, of your life, you know, uh, wrong, but, but I mean, just if you look up, if you look you up on Wikipedia, I mean, you've, you've served in the, the U.S. military, the Navy, you've been an intelligence officer, you know, most people have never watched the show. have heard of NCIS. You've been part of NCIS. Like, you know, you, um, your uh, father was an author, your mother was an actress, you're a best-selling author, you've written over 40 books. You're uh, a reenactor. You travel you know, all over the world reenacting reenacting these iconic ancient battles. You're an expert at, at medieval warfare. You post these videos that most of us in the writing community are glued to with, you know, fighting with spears. I mean, what don't you do? <laughs> I suck at music. Um, and my my wife, if she were here to mock me, would say, oh, yes, world's most interesting man, which is what she generally says when I have talked too much on almost any subject. Um, so, uh, you know, we could you can just keep that in your snark file and be ready to play it out at, at, at any time. And I, I think I, I need to specify that when I was at NCIS, there was no TV show. Uh, we we operated out of uh, Torpedo Hall in uh, on the Navy Yard in Southeast D.C., uh, from cramped, tiny little offices. And every time I've seen the show, and I think I've only watched three episodes, I just have to laugh. We didn't have our own forensic lab. We didn't have our own pistol range. We didn't have anything. Like, we were sort of like 200 guys and gals faking our way through being a law enforcement agency. Um, and that's not really fair because we did all kinds of stuff. But, wow, it was nothing like the television show. So... Um, and downstairs from us, we were on the, I want to say we were on the fourth floor. Downstairs from us was uh, Navy Jack, the Judge Advocate yeah. General. And that was a TV show, too. Yes. And I yes, just, I, I, I laughed every time an episode of that came out because they were all in uniform. Yeah. The real Jags almost never wore their uniforms. Uh, anyway, a little bit different from the TV world. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> I remember Jag, they also had those really pristine pristine, you know, crisp uniforms and whatever they went to court, you know, they never broke a sweat and, you know, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> yeah, great show. And um, I won't, I won't name names, but a famous, uh, action movie actor, uh, happened to be ahead of me and my partner in line when we were returning firearms from an overseas mission. And we were just handing them in, in the armory and this famous action hero, uh, was getting a tour and he basically said, like, this is your armory? This is absurd. This is like a closet. And uh, and he's just given the gears to the armorer, who's like, yeah, bro, like, we are a very small agency, and this is what we do. <laughs> and we're standing behind him, covered in dust from Central Africa, going, like, could we just? So finally, I literally pushed past him and said, we got to hand these in. <laughs> the armorer's like, well, sorry, Mr. Actor, but it's time to work. Anyway, very small. 
very small back then. Maybe they're maybe it's huge now. Maybe they have their own buildings and we finally have a forensic lab. Somehow I doubt it. Well, yeah, that's the thing about unfortunately, um, you know, uh, military law enforcement. Um, you know, it, the TV uh, versions are always pretty glamorous for the most part, but the reality may or may not live up to to the TV shows. So, but um, so so Miles, so tell us about you know again you've written over forty books. Tell us about uh, some of your writing. Again, I put uh, Trader Sun Cycle as one of my my top ten uh, series of all time. I was privileged to receive an arc from you of Against All Gods. <laughs> Absolutely loved it. It's nothing like anything I've read from you so far, and I've read uh, you know quite a, quite a few of your books. Um, you know, can you tell us a bit about your writing, what you like to write? Um, you know, about your new book. Uh, some of those. So. I'm going to start by saying I just love to write. And I don't think there's really very many things I love more than writing. And, you know, you, you, you played the world's most interesting man card. But the truth is, and I say this to people who want to be writers, it's a lifestyle. Yeah. And you got to do the whole lifestyle to be good. And part of that is um, it's, it's like building a website. You have to have content, right? So look, I'm talking to an expert writer, so don't please imagine that I'm trying to give you advice, Paul, but I'm just gonna give my little spiel on writing. So the first thing you have to have is content, and that means you have to have something to say. Um, and uh, very often, young people will show me their writing, and I'm like, you know what? You can write, you, you totally have the craft. The problem is that there's only two things when you're 18 that are adventurous that you've done usually, which is like sex and drugs, so people often write very well about those two things, but the 45-year-olds are going, uh-huh, well, you know, I was 18. I remember my first year. And I, I, I'm not sneering. It's just that I have said about a million times to people, like, have you ever thought of joining the Peace Corps or Canada Aid or, you know, like, it doesn't have to be the military, but go out and see the world, go to Africa, go to Burma, um, see how other people live and see what stories happen to you and that is the content. And then, like, in second place, you can borrow content by reading. And uh, I have read very good books written by people whose entire experience of, like, war was reading other people's fantasy novels. Hmm. I'm cool with that. If secondhand experience weren't legitimate, we wouldn't bother doing what we do, right? So, like... So there's lots of experience you can gain, lots of content you can gain, basically secondhand, whether you're reading ancient stuff like Xenophon and Herodotus or C.J. Sherry and Janny Wirtz. Um, smart people have done all this, and you can drink in the content and take what you want. But I think that is best mitigated with some experience. And then the other thing that I think about experience, because, yeah, I'm lucky I own like a house full of antique weapons and I can go spar with friends and do martial arts and wear armor. But, you know, honestly, a lot of stuff that I think translates well in my writing and in other people's writings is I'm trying to think how I want to put this. It's experience, but it's guest experience. Like I had this experience. Well, I'll give you an obvious example. I was in a stupid bicycle accident last year. 
And in the stupid bicycle accident, I got flipped over a car. Somebody doored me and I got a piece of metal in my leg from which I have learned a ton about wounds. And I will now write wounds better about how they heal, how they don't heal, what it's like to have a serious infection. Now, I didn't directly experience a battlefield wound and I didn't directly experience it from a Bronze Age weapon, but thanks to my bicycle accident, you get where I'm going with this, right? So that that's my content bubble, right? And it's a big bubble, but my last bubble kind of goes with content and it's just called reading because the way to know how to write is to imbibe all the writing of all the other people who've ever written and then decide how you want to write. And, you know, I, I said apologetically at the beginning that I don't read enough fantasy, but I mean that I, I am apologetic because there's tons of good stuff out there. And I believe you learn to write fantasy by reading fantasy. Like that, that is, that is part of the process. And yeah, I think some writers are better than others. I'm sort of unashamed about saying that, but the, the stuff I've always loved is people who are using the words expertly. And that is a craft, not an art. That is something that, uh, and you and I may craft differently. You know, there's different men and women who make great swords and they don't all make them the same, but it is a repeatable process that you learn with skill and that I like to imagine gets better with time. And one of the, the memes, if you like, that I really dislike in, in the publishing world is that your first book is your best book. I hate that crap. Maybe I hate it because I'm old and I have 40 books. But what other skill set is your first attempt, your best attempt? No, like your last attempt should be your best attempt. And I, I'm going to go out on a limb here and maybe annoy some readers and say, the reason it seems that way, that your first attempt is your best attempt, is that that's where you pour your content from your own life into a book. And if that's all you had to say, and I'm going to use an example, F. Scott Fitzgerald. So people go like, why did he only, I think he wrote three books and only one of them anybody has ever read. But I'm going to say, we were only interested in hearing about rich people have parties in 1920s New York one time. Man, that you, you, you should have gone to Africa and with George Eastman and seen the world or like, there had to be something else you could have done. And that's a terrible thing to say. And right now there's a graduate student or an English lit professional writing a note about what an idiot I am. And maybe that's fine. But um, my dad was a big Fitzgerald fan and he, I used to hear him compare Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And he would say basically like Hemingway just kept right on living a fairly adventurous life and writing about it. Fitzgerald sort of said what he had to say and was done. I don't know if that's a fair con comparison, um, but that I guess is my cartoon image of what it's like. So I like to imagine you get better and you get better by doing the actual thing and reading other people's stuff. Okay, there, that's my secret for writing. Uh, and I, I think it's a lifestyle because I think you have to do it all the time. I think you have to write all the time and I think you have to be observing the world all the time. And I think you have to be experiencing stuff all the time. And I will unashamedly 
and I don't know if this is right or wrong, but I will unashamedly just ask people stuff. Uh, I once interviewed a very wealthy woman, literally because I was about to write a very wealthy woman in a spy novel. I don't know any very wealthy women. That's not my world. So I, I basically found one and was like, so what's it like to be you? And I have done exactly the same thing for trans friends and, and other things has gone like, all right, tell me 10 things I need to know. And uh, that goes equally well, oddly, for something I know very little about, but write about all the time, which is horses. So I'm a modestly competent rider and I have spent a little time with horses, but I, you really can't write mainstream epic fantasy without some horses. And uh, so I interview horse, I have a good friend who is a horse pro. He rides, he teaches, he raises horses. And um, uh, I, I'm going to use that instead of maybe asking a trans person what it's like, because it's less controversial. But I'm going to say, I say to Ridgely, tell me 10 things about being a horse professional that I can use in a book. And the number one thing he said, which I have used about 10 times, is when you are going to sleep with horses, the sound of a hundred horses chewing grass all night can keep you awake. And I was like, whoa, I never even thought, I mean, there's layers to that, to what I didn't know about like, oh yeah, if you're with an army, there's a hundred horses. Oh yeah, a hundred horses are eating. Oh yeah, they don't sleep like we sleep. So, right, like there's so many things I didn't know to unpack there. And I can, anyway, I'm droning on and on. I think you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, that's good stuff. Uh, well, in Not Fantasy, I love Tom Swan's Adventures. And uh, we'd have a question for you. Uh, what book or series did you enjoy? Did you most enjoy writing? All of them. So here's a <laughs> deep, dark secret of my life. And Francois, I'll give you a better answer than that. Just give me a minute. Like, I really write for me. I write books that I'd want to read. And uh, I, I am proud to say I have never written a thing because I thought it would sell, uh, which Maybe why some of my books do better than others. Anyway, um, I really enjoy writing Tom Swan, Francois. And that's because Tom Swan is the peak of authenticity, like where I'm really, really carefully researching everything. And I try to make everything happen as it could. But at the same time, I play the humor card early and often. It's often very dark humor. But... Um, so yeah, Tom Swan's really, really fun. Uh, most enjoy writing two books in my life out of 46. I think I'm at 46 now have flowed out of me. Like the muses put it in my brain and I wasn't even working. And one was artifact space, my science fiction novel last year. And the other was my first Greek, um, the first long war book called killer of men. Uh, both books, it wasn't like I wrote them. It was like, and both of them were born bang. Uh, I can't even describe the creative process. I walked out of a movie theater on artifact space. Uh, my family and I had just gone to see little women. Uh, there was a particular scene in which the thing happened. I can't describe it, but when that scene was over, the whole of artifact space was in my head, except some details. 
like it was it was there and i can i can guess at the unconscious creative process because i was reading this book at the time and I, I can i can do all that for you but i can just say like bang it was there and i love that book and killer of men i was so deeply into the ancient greek headspace when i started that book that it was like being an obsessive love um and again it just gushed out of me and people have said about killer of men like why do you have all this stuff about the difficult childhood and whatever like why did you go there and i'm like i, I don't know that's what the muses told me to write that's what came out of my pen that day uh so sometimes it's like that um other novels uh you know I have a huge reenactor fan base, especially for my medieval books. So that's Traitor's Son and William Gold, Historical Chivalry. And those are very hard books to write. Um, and that's because I know a lot of people are watching. Uh, I'll be honest, you, I do tons of research, but you can say anything you want about ancient Greece. Nobody really knows anything. Like a good buddy of mine calls it the journey into complete darkness. Whereas 14th century Italy is probably one of the best documented times in Western history. So people notice. And anytime I make a mistake, people appear and write me notes to make sure that I knew I made a mistake. Um, so I won't write William Gold, oof, out of the box. And none of the Trader Son books were like that. They didn't just appear. They were hard to write. And the hardest book I've ever written was my fictional biography of Alexander the Great called God of War. Um, because when your main character is actually an awful person, you have to spend a lot more time reaching in and examining the not so nice parts of yourself. And like, that was brutal. That was like 800 pages of me at my absolute worst. Me as the tyrant, me as the aristocrat, me as the betrayer, me as the drunkard. Wow, good, cool. That was great. <laughs> um, questions are going by faster than I can probably answer them, but I'm going to say, what makes the Chivalry series special to you? Um, the level of research involved uh, is pretty titanic. I have a degree in medieval history, uh, and when I started writing it, my mentor from university uh, challenged me to keep it real all the time. And I want to say, by the way, that my mentor is anti-chivalry. He believes it was all a lie and basically they all sucked. And his point of view is completely valid and very much informs William Gold. It's just that I turned the coin over because as a sometime military professional, and this feeds directly into Andrew's question, um, I think it would do better for us to remember Sometimes the times that a police officer does the right thing than to only talk about the times they're wrong. Now, look, I've marched with BLM. I am not in favor of police brutality. But we also need to remember that knights were users of violence. And I'm going to compare them to cops. And again, this may make me unpopular, but it makes you dirty. It makes you dirty in your mind. It's very hard to use violence every day and be sane and normal and a good husband and a good whatever. So sometimes we should look for examples of people who do the right thing and praise them. And I feel that's what chivalry did as an ethic. And I feel that it still could. 
And if I were allowed, I would inflict, in, in, inflict the ethic of chivalry on today's law enforcement and military and say, like, you guys need rules. You clearly need ethical rules because you're not very good at the whole ethics thing. Um, that is a personal point of view that I hold very strongly. So what makes chivalry special to me is that I won't say every day, but every week, somebody from law enforcement, corrections officers, military people write to me and go like, wow, I had never thought of it that way. Oh, I had not thought of what you are saying about some things that may be too much to mention in the podcast. So sorry, I went there, but this is very serious to me. I, 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 I did the deed. I was in the military. I know what it's like. And I want the users of force in society to behave better. Wow, that wow, that comment really touched me. And um, as someone in law enforcement, I I hear you. That's all I can say is I hear you. That was um, yeah, that that comment. Really uh, that wasn't me. a shot at you by any means, Paul. No, no. Out there. There's I, just I, some hot cops out there too. Yeah, I totally realize that. Um, the one thing I, I, I want to highlight was that, you know, um, we, we do have, there's some similarities, my educational background, same thing, English, medieval, medieval, uh, English with, you know, a minor in history. And, um, you bring, unlike someone like me, uh, you bring a, a completely additional layer that most writers will not have. Again, I, I, I totally concur. We're 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 standing on the we're standing on the shoulders of all those who've come before us back to the ancients in terms of writing. And uh, for example, you're one of the people that you know when I when I when I wanted to write a book, I thought about your books as 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 the type of books you know I want to write. You bring an additional element because you are a reenactor. I mean, you you train with weapons, you travel all the world, and you've you know you may not have <laughs> you didn't fight the Battle of Thermopylae, but you've reenacted it. So you know how does that bring an additional element to your writing? The fact that you know you actually go out there and train with these weapons, uh, you know, participate in these events where you know again you can't replicate it exactly, but it is essentially facsimile of of these 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 iconic battles. Like, what does that bring to your writing, Paul? That's a great question, and I'm I'm going to divide it into two parts. So, martial arts and reenacting aren't always synonymous, and what's important about both of them is that they're simulations, and so. Before I tell you what I can get out, let me say that I'm more cautious than you might think. And I want to reflect this off into the world of writing and say, I am painfully aware that neither reenactment combat nor martial arts sparring are like combat. And then to make that, to spin that even further, writing those things probably is never like the experience of combat. So anybody who's been in a bar fight or a street brawl or even an accident knows that you can't really remember exactly what happened. 
And trained people know that the hugest advantage of training is that your body just rolls and you don't really have to be there. Um, and that is very hard to reflect in writing. And really early on in my writing career, an Australian SAS officer wrote me a complimentary critique. And he said, you know, love your Greek books, but mate, you and I both know that once it starts happening, you're in the black and you have no idea what, you know, like what thrust you threw, what parry. Right. The thing is that readers have an experiential expectation of what writing is going to look like. And if you say, and then he was lying on the ground and my spear was broken in my hand, that's a cool style, but you can only do so much of that. And Paul, you do some of that. Gotta say, like, I just read your book. You do, uh, and, and you can make it moving, which is good. And my favorite action writer of all time, who's a, a guy named Patrick O'Brien, who wrote naval novels from the 18th century, at one point, he had the whole naval battle not happen. Because you know the main character is going to live. And so he just cuts to the end when the guy's sword is broken and he's literally crying because of the number of people who are dead. And that is moving and cool and won't always work in fantasy. So that's a long preamble because I told you I talk too much. But before <laughs> I tell you what I get out of it, I want to say like there is a level at which you don't get that much out of it, right? And I, I am sometimes annoyed at my fellow martial artists for their belief that any martial art, Krav Maga, Fiore's longsword, whatever, is the most real. This is a game martial artists play with each other, and they're like, my martial art is valid. And I used to annoy people in my kendo dojo by saying that the only valid martial art was forward air controller. Um, because uh, I was at the time a Navy guy. And I was like, look, modern warfare is not about whether I can punch you or not. Uh, modern warfare is about whether my radar counter battery fire can take out your batteries before you get a second round off. That's, that's the world. Okay, now that I've given my giant preamble, let's talk about reenacting. So I'm going to talk about reenacting and martial arts separately because they're not always friends. So when we put on a reenactment, some of the experiences are incredible and I use them over and over again. So the most, I think, important military reenacting experience I've ever had was commanding an actual army of about a thousand guys and gals from horseback. So riding puts you eight feet above people on foot and gives you a dramatically better view of the battlefield. It also means everyone can shoot you. But I leave that aside. Moving around on horseback, having to go from group to group, from unit to unit to deliver orders while being constantly in the presence of the enemy, it was all fake, but I learned a lot. And I wish I could do it more often because it was one of the richest sensory experiences I've ever had, and I rip it off for books all the time. Okay, so that's like one thing. But it might surprise you to hear that the military part, the shield walls, the spears, whatever, 
That's not actually what I get out of reenacting, and that's not what I reenact for. It's camp life, the campfire, the inside of the tent, the place I sleep, the sound of the horses chewing the grass. That's what reenacting is for in my writing life. I love lots of things about reenacting, or I wouldn't have been doing this for 40 years. But I know how to boil water in a clay pot. It cost me three clay pots to get there. Uh, and I couldn't write a whole book about boiling water in a clay pot, but I could whip off a scene about a slave breaking a clay pot because she doesn't know how to warm it first because she's from a bronze culture and then getting punished for it. That would be a great character intro to teach you about who that woman is and who her rotten slave owner is as we enter into a fantasy novel because I've broken a clay pot trying to boil water. You get where I'm going with this? Like it, it's, it's a level of detail that I can't read in a book. I just, there, there aren't books. Now, interestingly, there's a whole new world and I'm old. It, so it's not new to you called YouTube where you can probably find a YouTube about boiling water in a clay pot, and then you know everything I know. You don't have to experience it yourself. But for me, reenacting just offers this rich tapestry of detailed, but let's face it, minor experiences. And you have them and you go like, well, that's going in the book. Like, And I think that all the time. I, I, I think like, oh, that's definitely, you know, like, uh, how, why no one has ever written the scene in which the great wizard simply sends 50 million mosquitoes to plague the enemy army the entire night before the battle? Why? It seems like that wouldn't be the high level spell. Why the giant fireballs? Why not just the mosquitoes the night before? I'll tell you that sleeping out uh, with no tents and a horde of mosquitoes all night, especially in cut grass, which I'm afraid I've done far too often, they're like worth nothing the next day and it doesn't matter how great shape you're in. Why don't wizards specialize in this sort of thing? Um, so, you know, that's a thing. And, and so that's reenactment. It's about detailed experience. Martial arts, sometimes friends with reenactment, but there's a safety problem. And I'm just gonna, I'm gonna start with the downs and move to the ups. If you have a hundred guys and gals on a side, and some reenactments are much bigger than that, there is no way they can be fully safe in historic equipment of any period, except maybe the high armor period. And then everybody's a knight and nobody is being the average foot soldier because that would be unsafe. So you can have a large scale melee that is safe in modern sport fighting equipment, or you can have a large scale melee that looks and feels right in period kit, but you can't have both at the same time. And that is a real limiting factor. And that's, remember, we've already had our lecture about how it's all a simulation. That's, that's like already we've decided we're having a simulation. And so a couple of years ago, we did a thing called the hoplite experiment where we had 60 guys and gals on the side in big phalanx fights. And it was very educational but we were in sport fighting equipment. So what we weren't experiencing was doing that in your bronze armor, 
what it would be like to get hit in the face where in a helmet that seems like it's designed to break your nose, all those fun things. <clears throat> and so I, I, I guess I'm not putting this well, but there are some complex interactions where reenactment tries to meet martial arts. So a lot of reenactment fighting is either completely scripted or it's like people come together and then cut, move on to the next scene, which we literally sometimes do. Okay, so over in martial arts, uh, martial arts is a whole different world from reenacting. Martial arts is about, I mean, you're both nodding. You know what martial arts is about. And it's about training. And that's another thing. A lot of reenactors completely untrained in any kind of martial endeavor. So, and some of them confuse what they do with martial arts, which makes them desperately unsafe. Sorry, reenactors. I love you all. Um, so over in martial arts, it's about training, but it's also about safety and modern sport fighting equipment. And almost all of martial arts, any martial art, from Taekwondo, Kendo, whatever, is about safety because we have to pay for insurance to run dojos and saldarms and stuff like that. And whatever level you're at, you have constraints of safety. Even MMA fighters have constraints of safety. They have rules. Real war has no rules. So, you know, ancient Greek pancration, no eye gouging, no finger breaking. Those were rules, right? Well, that automatically made it not like the battlefield as we know from ancient Greek accounts that those are two things people did to each other on battlefield. So, uh, you know, it's always a simulation and it has rules and it has to be safe. And that's where martial arts comes from. But what do I get from martial arts? Fight scenes. And uh, like, gotta say, the direct experience of a complex sword action. And I will say, I have a couple of favorite sparring partners uh, and I'd like to give them a shout out if I may. My friend Aurora Simmons, who is my co-instructor at Hapalalia WMA, my favorite sparring partner, and my friend Elizabeth Beatty, who makes the, the writing fighting series with me. I mean, and and Craig Renault, who is fabulous. And I have a number, but the point is I will stop them in the middle of a fight and go, that's going in a book because something weird or cool or utterly unexpected. Hard, hard to say, like, but when it happens, I know it. And I just like put that into a file, you know, like someday that's going in a book. Um, and I don't always use them, but sometimes I do. Sometimes I see other people do them. The problem is that when you experience it for yourself, it's easier to remember. And often when you see somebody else do something, even if you're highly trained, you're not quite sure exactly what just happened. Um, years ago, I watched two guys walk out full armor. They're going to fight with poleaxe, and they knelt and saluted each other, stood up, and the one guy flicked his poleaxe out, caught the other guy's ankle, and dropped him. Just woof! And they were like coming off their salutes, and the fight was over. And I had just turned to my maestro, the guy who teaches me, and said, "Good armor." And I, I missed it, like I I saw out of the corner of my eye. So that's not going in a book because I'm not quite sure how that works. But it could go in the book the way I experienced it, that is, with a character watching an expert fighter do that. Anyway, that's what I get out of martial arts. And uh, so when I, I, most recently I've written Against All Gods, 
and I'm writing about the Bronze Age. So I have inflicted on my friends in late COVID a lot of experiment because no one really knows how anything in the Bronze Age worked, which is one of the reasons it's so great for fantasy, right? But like uh, at one end of the spectrum, my beloved Poche culture in southern uh, South America, they're proto-Incas from about the time of Christ. Uh, but they were a Bronze Age culture in North America. They had bronze and they they had wild stuff and big pyramids and they were super fun. Uh, nobody really knows anything about their martial arts, but we know some of their weapons, which are wild, wild and not in the, let's call it fantasy uh, World of Warcraft mainstream. So there's been some like making things out of wood and going stabby, stabby. Like, how does this work with a big air shield? So that's, that is very useful. And sometimes it's just useful for getting your head around, you know, like, now this is going to be different from my, from, from Trader Sun, right? Trader Sun, 14th century Europe. We all know how that works, or at least we all think we do. Uh, Bronze Age fantasy, is that a trident in that guy's hand? Like, whoa, what just happened here? Um, so there's some, there's some work to be done just in learning some really basic stuff. That it, it's not great martial arts. It's more like, how does this work? Uh, Andrew had a question. As a fantasy-focused reader, what is a historical fiction book you have written that he can start with? I think because a lot of fantasy is set in a sort of fantasy Northern Europe, that the very easiest approach to my historical fiction is probably Chivalry 1, uh, Ill-Made Knight. But I'm just going to challenge you, Andrew. I, I mean, Ill-Made Knight's a really good book, but a little outside of the mainstream European comfort zone is Killer of Men, my novel about fifth century, sixth century BC Greece. Uh, it's told in first person, which is a very challenging way to write. He said, looking at Paul. Um, and, uh, but it's the best way to write Paul and my compliments to you. Anyway, um, and uh, uh, yeah, either of those is a good starting point. They, I, I have so many historical novels, you don't even want to know. But if you like one, feel free to try the rest. And uh, Andrew had another question. I'm curious. So when I used to teach Kempo, my dojo always referred to Taekwondo as the sport instead of a martial art. What is your, what would be your, uh, would love your take on this. Excuse me. Yeah. Uh, I, I probably about to offend the entire world of martial arts and say, uh, I can most easily explain my take on this by telling a story. So years ago, well pre-COVID, uh, the best close fighter in my uh, European medieval martial arts group was teaching. He was really just teaching falling. And uh, we had a brand new young woman who had come to us from the ballet school where we teach, where we have our sword school. And she was the prima ballerina of her group. She was 14 years old. I think she wore, weighed 92 pounds dripping wet uh, and our instructor chose her and said like i'm going to do this and you're going to fall and i want you to roll in this particular way and he um 
put her over his hip and she just stepped through it and stood on the other side. And for a moment, to all of us martial artists, the world didn't work. It was like we had just discovered we were in the matrix because it was a dead simple hip throw. It cannot fail. And somehow she was still standing up having bent like uh, upside down you, but not quite touched her hand to the floor and she was just standing on the other side. Where I'm going with this is she'd never done a day of martial arts, but she'd done 14 years of ballet. And her sense of balance, timing, and what we call measure in European martial arts was so perfect that her lack of training in martial arts almost didn't matter. Now, she would have struggled to have landed a blow or do, done anything like that. But to me, there is a solid continuum from dance activities through sport to martial art that means that people who are very, very good at almost any one of those things can almost instantly translate their skills at par. So we all know who Socrates was. Uh, not everybody knows that Socrates was a giant war hero. Uh, that is not the version of Socrates most of us were taught in philosophy 101. And uh, we know a lot of things that Socrates supposedly said according to Plato, but we only know one thing that he definitely said according to not Plato. And he said, those who honor the gods by means of dancing, they are best at war. And that pretty much sums up my view on martial arts. If you are fit, in charge of your body, have excellent balance, perfect measure, and a sense of timing, the rest is easy. And it really doesn't matter whether you're doing Aikido or Taekwondo or, I don't know, name them. There's a forest of them. And so, and again, I realize I will get in trouble with people, but when I hear martial artists who are uh, debate the validity of their martial art, I always go, yep, whatever. Um, right or wrong, that's my take. And PL, we did have a question for you. I just noticed the merch. Where can I get that hat and the shirt I need? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, we actually don't sell them. Uh, one day we may in the future, but um, you know, for you, Andrew, you know, DM me and we can we can hook you up. So, I think Andrew deserves a hat and a shirt for the excellent question. <laughs> yeah, that was that was an outstanding question. Um, you know, it's funny when I listen to a Christian talk about about. Uh, reenacting and uh, fighting martial arts. Um, you know, I, you know, Christian read my book, and so is Steve. I can tell you that there is a, a scene in there where uh, it, you know, essentially my wife and I choreographed this in our kitchen with, you know, her being the bad guy, me being the good guy with broomsticks. And um, just to, you know, ensure that, you know, um, if the person's left-handed, then the strike comes this way. Um, if the person has, you know, an injury on one side of their their body, then that would cause them to react this way. You know, just for the actually, and that's just like I said, it's it's you know, it's my wife and I in the kitchen. You know, my wife who's never 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 done martial arts or, or or had that that sort of training or competition like physical competition in her life. Me, who of course has has some level of training and but just you know just making sure that it works 
And my point is, is that I never thought that um, I could write a good battle scene, right? That was one of the things where I worried that would be a severe weakness with my own writing. And I looked to people like Christian, Christian Miles Cameron, you know, um, John Gwynn, you know, uh, you know, a, a lot of the great people who are acknowledged as writing phenomenal battle scenes. Jenny Wirtz, you know, writes phenomenal battle scenes. You know, uh, all these writers that you go, okay, well, I'll never. And, and I, I got to the point where, okay, well, I just, I felt that acknowledged, okay, that's not going to be a strength. It's something I'll work on. And, you know, but then, you know, when, when my book came out, um, there were a lot of people commending me for specifically my battle scenes. I was like, really me? Like I thought, okay, my world building. Okay, maybe I thought that would be more of a something that I'd be struggling. My policies, really? You, you think that's and and you know when I went back and read my own writing, which you know a lot of us actually don't like to do, we have to for certain reasons. But um, I was like, oh, okay, well, I guess I guess they're okay, but I didn't see the big deal because again, I'm thinking of you know Miles Cameron and you know Joe Abercrombie and, and John Gwynn and all the people who I feel write these phenomenal battle scenes. And the one thing I realized though is that. Um, it's all about as much as you can make it with your limited knowledge, but bring your experience. And again, as Miles said, you're reading um, to make it as realistic as possible because battle scenes are, for me, every competition I've been in my life, quick, as you said, bloody, you know, and, and over and, and essentially, typically one person loses and loses badly, right? Both people may get hurt, but one person loses and, and so, uh, and that's how I write my battle scenes. Miles, you're acknowledged as, again, one of those those writers in fantasy that writes some of the most thrilling and realistic battle scenes. Did you think that was something was going to be a strength of yours when you started writing fantasy? Another excellent question. I don't know. Um, I guess I did think it was going to be a strength because I'd already written the tyrant books that first, my first ancient Greek series. And I got a lot of praise for my battle scenes there, which was funny because I had done no ancient Greek reenacting and was basing everything on reenacting the American revolution, but it still gives you the dust haze on a dry day. And anyway, um, yeah, I guess I thought it was going to be a strength. But uh, it's funny to have this reputation for writing great battle scenes. And uh, I'm going to shout out to John Gwynn and say, yeah, he writes fantastic battle scenes. I love his books. And also, he's a, a early medieval reenactor. So he has some direct experience that makes him, you know, I'm sure it informs his writing. Uh, we've We've sort of been co-interviewed before on the, the very subject. But it is funny, like, in a way, I think battle scenes are easy. I'm not downing either you or me. But I think we're in an odd time where we're re-examining everything from colonialism to women's roles. But we're still addicted to writing about violence. And it's a, it's a major thing in all, not all, but in a lot of fantasy. And yet, I think the three of us currently on this would agree that we try and keep it out of our own lives. Um, and so I write good battle scenes sometimes is not the shout line I actually want to, to have in the world. 
I don't know. It's a very complicated thing. Uh, I, I am not fond of what I call war porn. So what I, what I tell people who are trying to write and what I'll say now, because it's important to me is that you kind of just said this, Paul. So I'm playing back to what you said, but when you write a scene that's got violence in it, it should still be about character and it should still move plot and it should have its origin and motivation. And then it's not porn. It wouldn't be porn if it was a sex scene. It's, it's moving the book forward. And I guess what I don't like, and I have definitely done it, so I am not superior, is when there are scenes that are like, oh yes, we've had 60 pages of plot. It must be time for a fight scene now. Um, which are like sex scenes in 1950s smut books, you know, where you're like, bro, this never happens to anyone. <laughs> um, so I, I just, that's like my little commercial for how it can't be the thing a book is about. And I think that despite, or not despite, in addition to the fact that right off the bat, A Drowned Kingdom offered me a sensible political system and galleys, two of my favorite things, um, that all of your fight scenes were informative. And in fact, in some ways, they're part of how you get to like your deliberately difficult character. Because he is brave, and we respect courage. And now I'm about to say a thing, Paul, and please don't come through my camera and kill me. But he's actually less of a dick when he's fighting than he is when he's talking. Yeah. And I've known that guy. And I I admired the way you did that. That was some prime character building. And it it elevates your fight scenes because it's not really about the fight. It's about who this guy is. Hey, you win. Like that, that's how you do it. I got nothing to offer. And the 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 who struck John of exactly how the blow was thrown or whatever. On the one hand, honestly, anyone can do that. I mean no offense when I say, yeah, you grab a broomstick in the kitchen with your wife or a significant other and you walk through it and done. Like anyone can do that. Although my funniest criticism ever, which I believe you can still read on Amazon.com, is a one-star review saying, I play World of Warcraft and everything you write about combat is nonsense. Okay, well, that, that's the point. Is that a real review? Is that a real review? I, I like to imagine that it was written tongue in cheek. That's my anyway. Um, but uh, the thing that the thing that makes us writers and the thing that is hard isn't the mechanics. It's it's why. So one of the things I think I'm great at writing. There's a daring statement: is the why of battle, not the how, but the why. And so this isn't about martial arts, and it is a little about reenacting, but it's really about, about wanting to know why people fight each other and how does a battle happen? How do two groups of a thousand guys and maybe gals end up lined up against each other in a field? Why? Like how? Why doesn't one army just break up into a thousand individuals with torches burning the farms of the other side. And you know, that has been tried. Like there's people who do that. Um, why 
are there organized fights? And uh, I mean, you have the same academic background I do, Paul. And uh, Steve, it's not like I'm not talking to you. It's just that I'm admiring Paul. But um, I often tell people, especially angry conservative readers, that and I'm not down in conservatives. They have belief systems, which in some ways aren't mine, but that war is just a cultural artifact like dance or painting. So nothing about it is logical any more than this year's Paris or Milan fashion show is logical. And people don't carry weapons because they're efficient. People carry weapons because they're fashionable. And people don't wear armor because it saves their lives, although they do to some extent, but they want that armor to be beautiful and make them look like gods. And none of that is efficient. So when two groups of people agree to get on a battlefield and fight each other, did they maneuver? Did they just send heralds and go like, Tuesday, be there on the spot, which people have done in history? You know, like that is the thing that literally keeps me up nights, but it is also a fantastic vehicle for writing character, plot, and mo motivation. It's how did you get to there? Why are you there? Um, and often like, like individual duels, uh, and I think, again, to compliment you, you, you have, I will not give any spoilers, but you have a particular duel that is central to the whole action of the Drowned Kingdom. And it's sort of the moment at which the main character also validates himself heroically. But the why of it is beautifully set up. There's no casualness to it. It is, it's been there for a number of pages. And you, you kind of know, like, this is going to be, how, how are we getting out of this problem? And that was like, an essential part of your book, and I think it's an essential part of any fight scene. So that's my long-winded, as usual, way of saying the part I think I'm good at is how they get there. But that then becomes very central to like the whole book. Why violence? Um, and in Against All Gods, which I really should be talking about because I'm just trying to advertise it, um, <laughs> I decided to do something I haven't seen a lot in mainstream epic fantasy and have uh, main characters who were pacifists, who were absolutely against the use of violence and no fools about it. That is not uh, not cutting corners with strong ethics. Um, so just a little sideline. Um, I based them on the Harappan Valley culture or the Indus Valley culture uh, of India. Um, some people believe that that culture gave us the Jains, who are the most absolutely nonviolent, don't even kill insects, uh, religious sect that I know of. I mean, I don't know everything, so there may be more. And I just thought that heroic pacifism might be super um, interesting. And also might, I don't know, it was my poke at my own world of fantasy. Um, and trying to get pacifists out of trouble in a dangerous world. Uh, it's like the opposite of the game we just talked about. Like, instead of writing why combat happens, you're like, how do I make combat not happen? When the cannibals are coming for the pacifists, what are we going to do? Anyway, that was, it was very fun. 
that, that, that that's that's an incredible incredible answer sorry i'm gonna let let andrew get to his question oh, uh andrew my family and my family are civil war reenactors since we have ancestors who fought in the war would you consider writing a book in this time period i think i'm being set up to offend andrew uh, i wouldn't write about the civil war because i think it's boring there uh I believe that the South was utterly wrong, that preservation of the Union was essential to the democracy of the United States. And the South had lost the war before it started, so the whole thing was a giant waste of human life. There was never a moment ever where the South had any chance on a battlefield or at sea. And it was terrible. Uh, I have thought of writing a fantasy novel loosely based on after the Civil War. I, I played with the idea with Sebastian de Castle, actually, we were talking about, and I, I love Sebastian's work, and I someday I'm gonna write something with Sebastian. And we considered a sort of anti-hero redemption novel with something like Confederate veterans at the American Civil War, slavers all, except it's his fantasy, so it's not the American Civil War having to face who they are and what they've done and to try and redeem themselves. Can you tell what a Yankee I am? I am deeply a Yankee. Uh, when I was in the Navy, my, uh, my roommate who outranked me nine ways to Sunday on the aircraft carrier, was uh, he was a Lieutenant Commander and he had graduated from one of the big Southern military academies. And one day we were talking about something, Gettysburg, I think, and he said, Chris, you are the most Yankee I have ever met. He's like, you just tell these stories like the South was wrong. And I said, Al, on the back wall of my, my grade school gymnasium, we had a painting of the Battle of Gettysburg. And he's like, so did we. And I said, yeah, in mine, the 69th New York is delivering a crushing volley into Pickett's charge. And you're behind them because it was a Catholic school and the 69th New York was all Irish Catholics. And there was silence. And then Al said, I've never thought of getting burned from the Union side, which I just thought was like, okay, well, there we all are. And maybe that's the real reason not to write a Civil War novel is that uh, you look at the last couple of presidential elections, it looks pretty raw to me. I'm not sure the Civil War is a subject we're all ready to delve into. Another thing which I find uh, you may not find interesting, but it's about reenacting. I have a secret belief that's not secret because I'm about to reveal it to you guys that we do our best reenacting when we reenact people we aren't and that aren't necessarily our ancestors. Um, uh, I have a running joke in my sort of meta reenacting group that we should really be doing Han Chinese and we should find a group in China that wants to do like ancient Greece or whatever because then you have no nationalist, racist, ethnic bias you're just trying to figure out what they did, making the stuff and recreating it at an experimental archeology span level. Because my experience of the American Revolution and I have both loyalist uh, that is pro-British and uh, continental or rebel ancestors in the American Revolution. My experience is that people with ancestors have skin in the game. They, they're committed in a way that can be it can be great because we always talk about good reenactments having spirit 
And that means that you, you really commit and you're into it. So it can be great. I'm not saying it can't, but sometimes it can cloud us from going, wow, these supposedly heroic Spartans, they had a pretty horrible society, but I'm going to reenact them, but I'm going to face the music because they're not my ancestors. It's not my dad. So I'm just going to face the music. And when I talk to the public, I'm going to say, well, and let's talk about the dark sides of Sparta. You know, like this is a slave helot society where a tiny handful of the 1% owns everything, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, and maybe you don't say that if you're from the Peloponnese in Greece, but if you're from China, you got no problem. You got no skin in the game. So I find that a, it's a thing. It's a thing. Uh, I, I'm not saying anybody's right or wrong because maybe nobody in China ever even starts a Spartan reenactment group because they have no, no investment. So it's complicated. But that was my two cents. It's a secret opinion, though. Don't tell anyone. Well, your secret's safe with us. And uh, Andrew said, writing from that perspective of it being a waste of time is something I would read, which I agree with. <laughs> you, you <know. laughs> and Andrew's just coming coming quick and, and heavy with the questions. Uh, what is your favorite story element other than battle to write? Great romance. Question, Andrew. Hmm. Romance. I love writing romance. Nobody ever praises me for it, so maybe I'm not very good at it. Um, but I swear my entire teenage, early 20s life was uh, about falling in love every 45 minutes. And, and when I look over fantasy novels, uh, it seems like maybe I'm the only person who had this experience as a teenager because young women and men represented in fantasy seem to lead lives of grim determination. And I have doubts. Um, my grim determination was constantly interrupted uh, by, by going like, wow, and wow. So anyway, uh, it's not all about me, but I like writing romance and I try and paint romance, especially failed, impertinent, or dumb romance. Maybe again, based on my own life experience. But you know, another thing that I like to write is a long-term relationship. Uh, William Gold and um, Gabriel Murians both have like pretty profound long-term relationships. Gabriel Murians in Trader's Son fails to get the woman of his dreams for like character reasons and then finds someone else. And it's not, I think, what any reader would have expected to happen. And uh, uh, can I tell another story or are we out of time? No. Uh, I was I was writing Gabriel Marin and uh, I won't I won't spoiler this, but I had I had set up his relationship with the nun Amicia and a really good friend of mine wrote me a note and said, if Gabriel Marin ends up with this nun, I will never read one of your books again. And uh, I had not planned for them to end up together, but it reinforced my notion that I was on the right track to have a failed romantic relationship be at the center of part of the series. So, yeah, my second favorite thing to write is romance. It's funny that we have that in common. I've talked about this on previous podcasts that, you know, uh, while on some levels I understand perhaps the aversion 
uh, with some fantasy readers and having romance in in their in their fantasy novels. Um, I've always found okay, this is an integral part of life. Like, I mean, nothing happens without it, right? And, and it's just, it, I, and I, I'm a big romance genre fan outside of, of fantasy, and I, and I can't envision myself writing a book with no love, romance, sex. It just, it's just organic to everything, right? And and it's funny you'd say that because that was actually one of the things I love about the Trackstone Cycle because. You know, and 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 one might think in in you know, and I'm thinking to, you know, especially the final book where you have these massive scale battles, right? These massive scale battles, but yet, you know, running through the thread of it all are, of course, the central romance, which is more of a committed relationship, but other romances, right? And that's I, I just feel like that brings so much to uh, the, to all genres, but fantasy especially and it's it's just really fascinating to hear you say that 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 romance is, is what you uh yeah. in romance by the way i include just sex for entertainment so like one of the things that i have from my military experience is the knowledge as a shore patrol officer that within 24 hours of arriving in any liberty port sailors will have spread across europe maybe to asia in search of sex and and by the way, that is not limited by gender. It is not limited by sexual preference. That's just sailing. And having had that experience greatly helped me write a company of mercenaries. Many of the minor characters in that company of mercenaries are in fact vaguely based on sailors I have known. Uh, and they weren't bad people. They were just 18 with all the happy baggage that 18 comes with. Um, but I, I also think that just makes people more characterful and more real. And sometimes that involves representing how things do or don't work out and the complications they cause. So again, in Trader's Son, uh, Michael first beds and later falls in love with a washerwoman who, uh, I had never intended to be a long-term character. That just grew organically. And the captain's initial reaction to that is to punish him for it because like, he's making trouble with the locals, which is a real command problem. If you've ever been overseas, it's that is real. And it's a punishable offense in any military group. And man, that, that was a gift that never stopped giving right through when I made her into a sort of major minor character who has her own problems, her own power, her own, yeah, good times. Always write the washerwomen. That's one of my, you know, and like we haven't really talked about gender and gender bias, but centering on combat does tend to center on the male experience. Now I can spin you a good game and I mean it about how women have been erased from military history and I think I know a fair amount about women's roles in military history, but that doesn't change the fact that across the pre-modern, it's probably at best an 85-15 split between men and women, uh, aside from a very small group of either First Nations or uh, Scythians in Europe, where there's uh, large groups of, of frontline female warriors. But it tends to bias us towards a male point of view. And the cool thing about 
taking a broader view, and I'm going to go back to my and your, you've got the galleys full of people sailing across the ocean from the drowned kingdom, right? And that allows you to spread your experience across gender because it's, they're basically refugees. It's not an army. It's a bunch of them, right? And that is really cool. And for me, in Trader Sun, the company of mercenaries, in Against All Gods, it's everyone in the world against the gods. So that that's pretty inclusive. But um, the thing about, and I'm going to go back to my brags that I write how they get to battle. Well, how you get to battle includes the washerwomen. It includes the people who cook. It includes the people who drive the wagons. Uh, you know, in Trader Sun, I have a wagoner as a major character who lasts all five books because you can use those characters and those points of view to show your readers a great deal about the action of how we get there. But also, suddenly you're balancing gender in a way that is real and authentic and legit and doesn't depend on stretching mores or I can't say reality because we're talking about fantasy, but if we base our fantasy on cultural artifact, sometimes we're forced to be true to cultural artifact. Yes. And, um, you know, George R. R. Martin, I mean, we, we probably all like him. He had a female knight and he, I felt, wrote her beautifully. Like he did a great job of explaining that in fact, she's not the world's great beauty. What she is is big and strong and kind of out of place. and uh, I've spent a lot of re my reading time looking for and at female knights in the real Middle Ages. And, you know, they're not uncommon in chivalric literature. Um, I can only give you two solid examples of women fighting in armor who aren't Joan of Arc. But because they're exceptional, you have to ask hard questions about how they got there and why they got there, and, you know, stuff like that. Anyway, I've spun off my topic. I just wanted to say that combat gives you a gender bias that doesn't help you write a modern book and romance helps you restore that. Doesn't even have to be straight romance. It can be gay romance, but it, it allows you to restore uh, a point of view that you can very easily lose as long as you don't just make them tools or sex objects. Yeah, that's not, not, that's, again, I'm not talking to you, Paul. I'm, I'm talking to people out there who want to write. One of the smartest things my dad ever said to me, and my dad taught me a lot about writing, is to never describe a female character as beautiful. He's like, find another word, find another word, find another word. Tell me why she's beautiful. Saying a woman is beautiful is a cop-out and can almost be derogatory. And when I started writing, I'm like, dad, what? why? Why can't she just be beautiful? But it's 35 years later, and now I go, oh, those were very, very good words. Yeah, that's that, that's that's some fantastic advice, I think. And we're all growing and learning in our craft, um, you know, from the novices like me to the people who have 40 plus books such as you. So I, I want to I want to quickly uh, focus in on on against all gods, your your which is in currently in pre-order. We really should do that. And yes. and and was a phenomenal phenomenal book um I, as i said it was best to get an art from you thank you so much um one of the things 
one of the themes that you may or may not explore, this is just my interpretation. And what I I love the whole concept of capricious gods. That's one of my favorite, favorite themes anywhere. One of the things in against all gods was that, and I highlighted this review I wrote recently in Goodreads, is that it seemed that what it what happened was the gods are completely contemptuous of the human beings, the mortals, not just the 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 humans, but the, all life forms other than themselves. And, you know, uh, the leader is contemptuous of, of the gods as well, his own subordinates. But then the humans become, get to that point where they're, 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 they've lost faith and are, are, are alienated from the gods and become contentious of them. So there's mutual contempt. That's what starts, you went back to causes of war and, 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 and how these things happen, how battles happen. That's how it it comes together that basically there's this mutual contempt finally, right? And and I, I love that. And do you feel that um, if you look at what's happened, um, you know, in modern times, we know that as much as there are people who are uh, devoutly religious, regardless of your faith, irrespective of your faith, there's people who have, have, have they feel that they've, they've lost their faith, they feel alienated, they feel that, you know, um, they don't see the value in, in worship, et cetera. I'm not sure if you're religious, you're religious or not, or if that's been part. I'm I'm guessing at some point that that may or may not have been been part of your life. Um, I could be wrong, but do you feel that when you were writing against all gods, was that something that you were looking to explore? That you know, uh, a loss of faith. Um, you know, was that something that was part of what you were writing about? Yeah, you're very accurate but maybe slightly pointed in the wrong direction. So I wrote against all gods while Donald Trump was president in the United States. So I love democracy and I spent a few years of my life putting my life on the line for my country because I loved the democracy part, not the making more money than anybody else part. Now, I'm all Canadian now, but I still care what happens in the United States. And uh, so the contempt isn't about religion. Now, I'm a modestly religious person. I'm an Anglican. I go to Anglican church. I serve at church. And in fact, <clears throat> I should put that on my, on my masthead along with reenacting in martial arts because I perform ritual magic two or three times a week. The whole Eucharistic ceremony of Christianity Let's face it. I, I mean, I, I'm unashamed of saying it is a liturgical ritual magic. And the fact that I happen to believe in it is actually immaterial because I'm a pretty good culturalist. I can look at it from outside and say, I get to participate in this in this ritual. And that ritual gives me things, stability, uh, maybe just entertainment. Good ritual is very entertaining, right? But also uh, some meditative qualities and stuff like that. And I try and write that into my magic systems. Uh, I, I believe in ritual. Ritual is fun and interesting and whatever. Anyway, I'm just saying, like, again, it's one of those experiential things where even while I'm actually at church, I'm still being a writer. It's always on going like, oh, how can I reflect the smell of incense against all gods? Anyway, um, I'm not really in revolt against religion. Organized religion does a lot of great and terrible things. And like... I can spin that either way. Uh, and I, I have been ashamed of being a member of an organized religion. 
and I'm afraid to say I, I rarely get to be proud of it. There, you know, uh, my, my little sect of Christianity has recently decided in Canada not to accept same-sex marriage, even though they'd spent 12 years getting there. And my little sect in Canada recently, anyway, uh, you know, like uh, residential schools, anyone? It, it, hasn't, it hasn't done their best. They haven't done their best. Flip side, though, is an excellent book, uh, which I recommend to every fantasy writer out there, called Jon Snow's... No, it's not Jon Snow. Guys, that's a character from George R. R. Martin. Snow's London? I'll, I'll, put it, I'll put it up on Twitter. Um, it's a guy writing in 1592 about what London is like. Stowe. Stowe's London. S-T-O-W-E-S. Stowe's London. And it's just incredible because this isn't knights and princesses. This is like down in the streets, what it's really like, what the taverns are like. And he goes neighborhood by neighborhood through. And every mainstream Western fantasy writer ought to have a copy to go like, what's he say about taverns? But one of the things that comes across very, very strongly is what the social welfare network of 16th century Europe was. And it's the church. And the church is full of beds for paupers and free clothes and things you don't think about when you're writing princes. But like, yeah, they had a social net and the whole social net was run by the church. And that's not bad. Anyway. I, I'm just saying, like, organized religion is complicated. When I wrote Against All Gods, I think what I was really writing about was surveillance capitalism um, and the willingness of people to own government for their own ruthless self-interest with no concept of arete, of excellence, of doing the best they could for everyone. I mean Donald Trump. I mean like everyone in the Trump administration. And I'm completely unashamed about saying this. Uh, and uh, at least one angry reader has already spotted that it's very political. It's meant to be political. I'm, I'm, I'm saying things. Uh, a couple years ago, I got a review on Cold Iron, which is sort of about race. And uh, the reviewer said, I want my fantasy to be entertaining and I don't want to hear any of this crap about the world we live in when I read fantasy. And you'd sell more copies if you if you stuck to you know writing good fight scenes. And my answer to that is if you think anyone who puts in the time to get a hundred thousand words down on paper is going to keep their personal views out of it, you're living in a dream world. I know people who can't cut their lawn without being political about it. Like this is the world we live in. We live and breathe politics. We are citizens of democracies that are participatory, so we're participating. Anyway, so when I write, uh, it's got some political content, and you correctly discerned. Against all gods, it's not really about religion, although I can be as angry as anyone, any atheist about organized religion. Just try me. But it's really about politicians, especially greedy, venal politicians, treating us with contempt. We're just there to be used, and we're dumb. And one of the reasons I loathed Donald Trump isn't actually just his policies. It's that I feel he made it clear on a number of occasions that he had nothing but contempt for me and anyone like me. Um, and I include military veterans who he clearly held in contempt. He actually asked a U.S. military retired general why 
his son would serve in the military or die in Afghanistan. What does that tell you? Um, anyway, uh, Uncle Anu, my chief god, is not Donald Trump. He's way more entertaining and smarter. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, it's not a novel about Donald Trump. It's not. But it's a novel about venal politicians who believe that the world belongs to them. And you know, at another level, it's about colonialism because I, I think this is a spoiler, but the gods, they ain't from here. They came from outside, took the place over, and they're running it for their own benefit. And they've turned one of the races into slaves and like absolute slaves, not just some, uh, a, hand, a bunch of human slaves. The whole race has been enslaved. And that's just fine with them because it's all about literally drinking the blood of some of, of, of the, the people. They're not good. Yeah. It's it's good. Good, right? Are they funny? The gods? <laughs> funny as hell. <laughs> funny as hell. It, uh, that I, was have more, I have one more thing I really want to say about Against All Gods, because I don't want to give the idea it's an allegory. I feel like Tolkien, not that I am in any way as good as Tolkien, but Tolkien said, you know, Lord of the Rings, not an allegory in World War II. It's not an allegory. It was just fed by the world I was living in at the moment when I when I wrote the book. But what I also want to say is it's also very much fed by the Iliad. So uh, I've read the Iliad maybe 30 times, probably as many times as I've read the Lord of the Rings. And somewhere in my gradual awakening as a white male to the fact that the world didn't work the way the Iliad made it sound, uh, I hope that sentence made sense. Anyway, uh, at some point, I realized that the Iliad is actually hell. It's hell. It's even hell for Achilles, and he has agency. But it's definitely hell for every woman in it. And most of the men. You know, and like Briseis, Helen of Troy, they're at best beautiful sex objects who are bought and sold and traded and handed around from one warrior to another. Cool. Well, that's a really good world. Um, and then the more times I read it, the more I realized the only actual people with real agency are the gods. That even Achilles and Hector, they don't, they, they imagine they have agency, but actually they die when the gods say they die. They live when the gods say they live. And I went like, wow, this is hell. And then I went, oh, I wonder what it would be like to try and break. Like, that's where the idea came from. Break the system. Let's break the wheel. Oh, Let's right. see what it would be like to, to break the Iliad. Because, you know, in the Iliad, Zeus and Athena at least come off as being okay. But then that's kind of like saying, yeah, there were some okay slave owners in the 1840s antebellum South, like still owning slaves. So how okay are they really? Like Zeus and Athena are participating in a system where only they have agency. And I love the Iliad, but it's an ugly story. Yeah, and, and and you know um, that that brings me to to a question I have for you about you know and again because we have a similar background you know and and we had uh, Natanya Baron, fantastic uh, writer as well on a previous page stream. She's a medievalist. Um, I recommend you check out Thread Talk uh, that uh, that hashtag what she what she um, does with you know examining fashion and and colonialism and all the links there. So not, but anyways, um, you know, I've spent most of my uh, my for well, I, certainly my formal education, and that 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 
era of my life. And it leads, certainly bleeds into my writing, you know, admiring uh, a lot of things that when you break them down to brass tacks, some of them are quite detestable and contemptible, right? Uh, these features of, of history and these these historical errors that we we lionize and we say that they're, you know, you know, I mean, that we certainly romanticize the medieval period to a certain point and certainly a lot of traditional fantasy puts it on a pedestal essentially, right? Whereas we, we know the truth that, you know, it was quite horrific. The living conditions were horrific. You know, a lot of value systems were horrific. And, you know, just, and as you said, you have something like the church with, has this contradiction of benevolence, but yet, you know, oppression and all these things, right? So when you write fantasy, you know, not so much for your historical fiction, but when you write fantasy, are, are those things cognizant? Have they been cognizant? I know we talked about Against All Gods, but have they been cognizant with you? Have they traveled with you through your writing in terms of look at, well, you know, there's, you know, all these systems that, you know, while, again, they're romanticized and lionized, that it's horrible. And while I'm writing about it, consciously you're thinking about a lot of the horrors and, and the bad things. So... I'm going to say first, yes. So it's not like I don't have lots to learn uh, about everything. But since I started writing, I have always been cognizant. And I've been cognizant because Dick Kuiper, my mentor in university, really was not a fan of chivalry or knights. Uh, really, really. And it was pounded at us every day. What a bunch of armored thugs they mostly were, and how seldom they lived up to their chivalric ideals. And it's good to know that when you're going to do the Middle Ages. I'm going to balance that by saying one of the most deep, bad sentence, but whatever, uh, one of the deepest experiences of my life was uh, being with NCIS in Africa. And one of the things I noticed again and again, and I was with lots of different levels of people, right? I was with the Kenya Wildlife Service. I was in Central Africa with what we would call tribal people, even though that's a colonialist phrase, but I don't know a better way of putting it right now. And one of the things that I constantly noticed was how mostly happy most of these people were and how good they were at raising their kids who seemed pretty happy for kids. And I leave aside, I'm not talking about refugees from from the Great Lakes crisis, uh, sorry, that's Rwanda, all that stuff in the mid nineties, that was part of my life. Um, I'm not talking about refugees. I'm just talking about people living in villages and they didn't have a lot and they were exploited by other tribal groups and they still had lives. And I learned a lot about European peasants in the middle ages from that experience that, that people continue to love and hate to have babies and raise them, to worry about their kids, to worry about probably their sexuality, their approach to religion. And, you know, there's big oppressors out there and mercenaries from the Congo shooting people a hundred miles away and, and they're still living their lives. And that's not to say oppression isn't bad, it's bad, but it's to try and remember when I write the Middle Ages, that there's more to life than the fact that you're being oppressed. And uh, it's funny, I wrote, and I'll, I'll probably never publish it, but for the Trader Sun books, 
I actually had a POV that never did anything but live on a tiny farm. And they're just hearing about the events uh, in a kind of fractured fairy tale way. And I think I only got it into the book once when they're just hearing that a great tournament is going to happen. But that had actually been a POV in, that occurred at least once in every book. And all they are is people. They're peasants living on a farm, tilling the ground and waiting for it to rain. I grew up with farmers. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've waited for rain. I've waited in a drought for, for rain. It's a profound experience for farmers, right? Anyway, uh, this is, again, my long-winded way of saying, uh, yeah, the Bronze Age was inefficiently oppressive and the medieval world was more efficiently oppressive. And by the same token, modern economic imperialism is probably way more efficiently oppressive. And yet, I'll bet your life is modestly happy. My life is modestly happy. Uh, people in Arkansas are raising their kids and worrying about their checking account, but also enjoying the heck out of flying kites. Like, it, it, you got to hit that balance. And one of the things I worry about most when we invent oppressive evils in against all gods, in the Lord of the Rings, in whatever, is that you can lose sight of a terrible part of the human experience, which is that a lot of us can just ignore global climate change and keep on driving our cars. Uh, and, you know, I could write a, I love Tolkien, I'm a huge Tolkien nerd, but I could write a pastiche on, on the Lord of the Rings where almost no one cares that Sauron is going to get the ring. Because they're all like, but that's over there in Mordor. Hey, it could suck for Gondor, but it'll never come here. Like, and then, you know, let Gondor fix it, which he almost does say, which is very realistic of it, right? But like, only the Rohirrim go to help Gondor because kind of everyone else is cultivating their own garden. You know, the Bjornings are all kind of like, yeah, we're up here by the Fords. Sauron's a long way away. Um, yeah, I, I would make it funnier, but. Uh, even while there's oppression, even while there's horror, even while Russia is behaving like Nazis in the Ukraine, many of us will go out drinking tonight. And I think that's an important thing to capture. Uh, Arun had a, had a question for you. Artifact and even Red Knight had some slower slice of life uh, sections. When was that done to make the later parts feel super fast? I love those parts and they greatly added to my reading experience. I love this interview. This has been the best time and people ask the best questions. Uh, Aaron, I'm, I'm going to give a very unsatisfactory answer. I'm going to say sometimes I write slice of life POVs because I'm telling myself how it feels to be in outside of the heroic mean action. And sometimes it's my very not as clever as I think I am clever way of transmitting an important plot point subtly. So uh, I wanted people in Trader Sun to understand that the dragon, Mr. Smythe, knew how gunpowder worked and was transmitting the technology under the radar without telling the other dragons to humans. And I always knew that a 
huge grand battery of artillery pieces was going to be the mean anti-magic defense of humanity at the very end. But I wanted to get that whole plot line across without the reader really twigging. Uh, I'm, I'm doing a terrible spoiler here, but without the reader really twigging how essential the invention of gunpowder was going to be to the military plot line. And so I invented a whole cast of characters and actually they kind of ran off with things. I had not expected them to be so important. And, and I used them to, then I kept going back to them and using them for different things like, oh, what's their experience of the riots? Oh, they all know Blanche, cool. I can use them as a way of showing you that Blanche isn't just a washerwoman. She's actually a really important member of her community. Oh, you know, like, but, but also, um, but also there is a verticality even in medieval society that is often missed. That is loyalty goes up and down, not just side to side. So sure. Uh, medieval aristocrats were tyrannical and awful and probably so were Japanese aristocrats. And yet at the same time, weirdly, they were super dependent on their underlings. So instead of being cruel to them all the time, um, that was a great way to die in battle. You, you, you're, you're mean to your underlings and wow, something happened to Bob in the battle. We've never, Lord Bob, he, he was out front. And I don't know. It is peculiar that the dagger's in his back. Um, but uh, it's fun sometimes to look up at your main characters and also to show, see, I really believe in the little people. I am a little person. I'm not a big person. I really believe that what the Edmonds and the Blanches do uh, matters in the end. So I want to offer those scenes. And then Aaron, because I'm feeling like I've never answered your question, they're slower because I literally believe it can't all be about action. And that is an unpopular view. It's even unpopular with Edward, with editors. And uh, I'm going to leave fantasy for a moment and say, when I was writing William Gould, Chivalry, uh, a, a fairly young, relatively new editor, and we got along quite well, but she wanted me to cut my fairly extensive scenes about shopping in medieval Venice. And um, I basically said, I know that there are people reading this book who are reading specifically to hear about shopping in medieval Venice. Like, it's like a fantasy that a lot of us reenactors have. Please show me the most multicultural city in the medieval world and what it was like to walk into the Rialto market where you could buy stuff from China. Show me, like, this is my dream, right? It, and a lot of people like, I'd like to see a Shakespeare play. Me, I'd like to go to the Rialto in late 14th century Venice. So, um, and I think I was right to include that, but it does slow the action. It really does. And you've made a good point. Maybe it does make the other parts feel super fast. And maybe that's why I get away with it. I have literally never thought of that before. Uh, now that you mention it, I'll think about it the next time I'm writing, because it is a really good point. But it wasn't done deliberately. He said, staring off into space. I don't think I've done it deliberately. Uh, I haven't even really thought about alternating tempo, but now that you mention it, it's a really good idea, Aaron. Well, I have Steve laughing. That's a great question. That's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing is, I've made it sound, and I, Paul can totally differ with me on this. I've made it sound like I have tremendous agency in my writing. 
Like I think it all through and I'm in charge. There are times it feels that way, but very often, and some of the best stuff, it just like happens. I always know when I'm getting a character, when the character starts to wander off and do things that I had not expected. And I admit once in a while that that doesn't work, but I usually just go with it because it's like, ah, now I've gotten into Blanche's head and look what Blanche is doing. Who knew? Okay, well, you know, like, uh, the laundress has a life of her own. Good to good, good to know. Um, and that definitely happened in Against All Gods, where I just kept going like, "Oh, never intended you to be a major character. All right, here we go. You, you're you're on. You're you're in the team now." Um, so uh, sometimes you're trying to portray another point of view, and all of a sudden you discover you have a new protagonist. Hmm. I can honestly say that, and I, I'm I'm horribly. Um, non-spontaneous i think with a lot of my writing i mean my series is planned out 20 books you know including prequel trilogies i know all the titles i know the covers i but at the same time i i do agree that there's certain characters that yeah they demand agency they jump up in your face and say hey i need to play play uh play a more prominent role in your book and you better do it or else it's not it's it behooves you to do it so and then you realize yeah you know what that's really, and and it just happens and they i don't want to say they take over but they certainly take over elements that you didn't anticipate they would at least the way the what i've found in my writing right and again i'm only currently writing book three not book book, book 46. i never intended zoss to be as major a character he's the mercenary cell sword as he came out uh and in uh trader son desiderata the queen she was going to be a bit part and a bit of a caricature wow. and wow. something happened on the way to the circus and you know um <laughs> uh, uh and that's the way it goes and i am i am more of a pantser than you um but i write good outlines you know i i and i write arcs for the whole series um i, I believe in writing the whole series i want to hurry, hurry to say that to all of the readers who are listening i am um, you know, I've already written book two of Against All Gods and book three I've got completely outlined. I I will not let you down. It will all be completed. Okay. Also, I write really fast. But under the right circumstances, I'm open to some change or some remarkable change. Uh, and I'll just give you one example and then we can move on. Uh, in Trader Son, uh, Desiderata's baby was going to be born dead. Um, she was going to fail to have her baby and oh, wow. th that whole scene was going to go completely differently. And then I started writing it and that's not what happened. And it profoundly changed the rest of the book. It even changed the politics because Gabriel Murians, she was going to die in childbirth and Gabriel Murians was going to be the king of Alba. That wow. was, that's how I wrote the outline. And then wow. like I'm writing the book and going like, you can't do this to yourself, man. Now everything changes and everything changed. And I went with it and I think it was better that way. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm biased obviously, but, and I, I wish I could have been in your head to see what that would have looked like had you gone in another direction, but I personally loved, loved the direction you did end up going in, so. Um... Woman in childbirth winning, winning magical duel with sorceress, one of the most difficult, interesting scenes I have ever written. And 
nothing to do with any experience. So all that stuff I said in the first question about content, I had no content. I've never been in a magic fight. I was just making stuff up. No, that's really about books I'd read, good books I'd read um, with great magic fights in them. Have you ever read um, the Dorini Chronicles, Catherine Kurtz? Nope, nope. Classic 60s fantasy. Catherine Kurtz also founded the SCA, the Society oh, for Creative oh, Activism. Oh. Um, strongly recommended, probably a little yeah. dated. Man, her magic system rocks. Okay, that's I'll 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 definitely be putting that in my TBR. I'm I'm committed to um, reading more and more classic fantasy because I realize, first of all, I love the writing. You know, I, I, I I'm not saying I'm I, I'm all about archaic more what people would now consider archaic writing. I'm just saying that that I I do really enjoy a certain style of writing, and you know, um, like I get that from certain writers. I mean, you're one of the Jenny Wirtz. You know, I definitely uh, got that from your book, Paul. Your style is so you have your own style. It's it's brilliant. It's <laughs> you sound like a prince. And that's if only. Uh, <laughs> I guess, no, I no, guess. No, it, it's like uh Gabriel Murray's is lowbrow by comparison. Like that you just you you have the tone, it's great. Well, thank you. That's the, I, that's a, that's a huge compliment coming from you. And I think you talked about this. One of the hardest things. It wasn't hard in terms of everything uh, negative, um, racist, homophobic, sexist. When all when often is intolerant religions. These are all things I've heard with my own ears. Either heard with my own ears, or have heard people say, or family members, friends, or I've seen, I've heard said on, you know social media, the news, you know, so, but again, yeah, it was, uh, so it was hard and it wasn't to write for the perspective of a character that has these, that holds these opinions and holds onto them so stridently. So, um, but yeah, it, 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 it's funny that um, I had to dial back to uh, my educational experience, you know, all of my reading, um, you know, I, I, I'm a pretty big, um, you know, uh, when I was younger, especially, my mom is a huge, huge royalist. My mom loves the British royal family. You know, it's just, just, just worship, idolizes them, right? You know, she grew up staunchly Anglican and, and you know, just, she's, but anyways, I had to dial into that and the things I would hear her say about them and then compare that to my own research about them, for example, and, and, sure. and, 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 and typical, you know, uh, medieval type type uh, nobility, and just go. Okay, well, yeah, that's something they would think. Yep, that's something that that he would you know, think. And, the harshest underpinning. And by the way, I'm a mild monarchist. I'm a socialist monarchist. But the acceptance of a monarchy is irrational. But let's face it, people aren't rational. Anyway, I'm not going to try and talk you into being a monarchist. I'm just going to say it was. A terrible moment when I realized at about age 20 in university that the underpinnings of my beloved medieval knights were that the upper class believed that they were better with a capital B. They were better, their lives were more important. And it's, you know, we use the word racism very freely and sometimes too freely. 
Because sometimes I worry that when we say racism, what we mean is this thing, and we don't have a good name for it. It's that some people believe that they are better and their lives are more valued than, uh, valuable than other people's. And that isn't always about race. Sometimes it's about money or uh, where you live. Uh, we did a, I did philosophy in university too. And we, we did this sort of weird experiment that was chilling that basically came down to the fact that most people believe their own life is of infinite value. But as people get farther away from them in terms of relationship, those lives are worth less. And by the time you're in Sierra Leone, they're not worth much of anything. And then when I was an intelligence officer, one of the things that we used to say that is terrible, but we were Africa officers and we all worked Africa and we all loved Africa. Just want to say like, this isn't a bunch of white supremacists being in Africa. And we'd go like 50,000 people have to die here before it makes the news. You know, somebody's kid gets run over in Poughkeepsie and I'm not downing that. That's a terrible thing. I hope it's never anybody's kid. But, you know, one American gets run over in a driveway. It might make CNN. You got to kill a lot of people in Africa or India before it makes CNN. And that is a worry, right? Like that, that is that medieval attitude. But it killed, anyway, I'm getting off my topic and on my soapbox, but it killed me to discover that this racism, for a better word, the belief that you're, you aristocrats are a separate race, better, like Legolas in The Lord of the Rings. Oh, yes, we have the magically good eyesight and we can run across snow and we're just naturally better. Poor humans. You know, like, oh, actually, no, that's really bad. That's everything I'm against in real life. And yet I love Legolas. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. you get what I'm saying. <laughs> no, I, I, I totally get it. Um, I, you know, we could talk for hours and hours here. I want to respect your time. And, you know, I, I know that, you know, you, you've been so generous with it. Miles, I just, I, 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 we're just so grateful to have you here today. I, I, I do thank you again for all the kind words about, about Marani personally. It's, you know, I, you have no idea how, how humble, you know, I am by that. Um, you are, again, uh, Against All Gods is currently in pre-order. Uh, I just want to highlight a few things before we start to wrap up. When is it coming out? So, uh, I, and I, you know, I've got a copy in the next room that I'd like to run and get and hold absolutely. up. Absolutely. Give me yeah, a absolutely. second. Yeah, absolutely. And then I will, I will say a few rational words about it, and then we can wrap up. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> yeah, Steve, I'm not sure what's, what's on the question uh, comment box, uh, if there's anything outstanding. That, um, uh, I think we're... Uh, uh, let's see. Yeah, we do have one last question. Oh yes, yeah, from the Pegasus. Yeah, I. Uh, that's the. I think. Uh, is the Pegasus my favorite of the series? Anyways, oh, there she is. Uh, it's really quite an attractive book, yeah. so people could buy it because you know, like. Um, anyway, what I want to say. Uh, Aaron, yeah, absolutely. God, I loved Ariosto. Oh, um, also a fabulous book by Char uh, Chelsea Quinn Yarbo. If you've ever read any Chelsea Quinn Yarbo, uh, Ariosto is a great knight in the European Renaissance. There's a fabulous, huge chivalric poem in Italian uh, about Ariosto. And then anyway, it's a nested set of jokes from medieval literature, Ariosto. 
including the fact that he seems to be powered by human emotions, especially lustful ones. So, uh, uh, yes, uh, there are cute but powerful pets. Uh, as my friend Paul was kind enough to mention, there's a donkey. Uh, <laughs> You're going to love the donkey. <laughs> my wife loves donkeys, and so do I. I have, I, I, I've learned to love donkeys from her. Uh, and wow, I should I could tell another story, but we're running out of time. So Aaron, yes, there's cute but powerful pets um, who may in fact be secret gods moving on in, in the future. Uh, Against All Gods is out in the UK and UK related markets starting on June 23rd. Um, for some very odd reason, I can get the audiobook and the Kindle in Canada on June 23rd, or at least that's what they're telling me. Um, so I guess I can get, I, I actually am so fond of Peter Noble that I ordered a copy of the Audible and paid for it. Um, nobody sends you a free copy of the Audible. I don't know why. Am I not a famous author? What? Anyway, um, and uh, uh, sorry, I have to go back. Paul, you said we don't like reading our books over and over again, but, and I'm going to say, uh, to all you aspiring writers who are listening, do you know you are going to end up reading this manuscript 14 or 18 times? And then when you're on book 27 of the series, if you're me, you read the 26 books you've already written, because that's the only way you can remember who everyone is. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> you, you will end up reading book one so many yeah. times that you may not it's even true. enjoy it. Uh, I'm happy to say I mostly enjoy my books, but man, you have to go through them. So recently, and I'm just going to say this for, I don't know, anybody's benefit. I've taken to listening to them on Audible. I love Peter mm -hmm. Noble's voice. Um, uh, I love Ms. Ms. Nikoye's voice for Artifact Space. I actually think she made my book better. Like, uh, however good Artifact Space was, her performance of it is better than my book. Mm -hmm. And I get that with Peter Noble, too, especially with the Tom Swans, his performance is better than what I wrote down. So listening to it uh, while I run, while I do other things, helps me get in the headspace to get ready to write the sequel. Anyway, probably didn't need to know that. June 23rd uh, in the UK and September 3rd in the United States. And I think that's all the markets. Uh, there is gonna be a mass market and nobody's given me a date. So it's hardcover, Audible and Kindle now, and then probably a mass market in I'm going to guess midwinter. Hmm. And uh, on the U.S. Uh, Amazon side, it is the Kindle is available the 23rd. The uh, audio is I don't have a date on it yet, but the uh, hardcover says September 6th. Oh, okay. Thanks, Steve. I really appreciate that because um, you you know I'm a traditionally published author, and this may surprise you if you are not a traditionally published author, but I am often the last to know. Hmm. Well, it, it, it is a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. The, the, the book is fantastic. Um, I'm, I know I'm going to be picking up a, a really nice uh, edition. Uh, and you uh, you're coming to my house on July 15th, and I have one for you. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> How cool is that? I'm, I'm, I'm humbled. I'm so honored, Christian. Thank you. Uh, I think that's begging you to reenactments. Oh, I. <laughs> I am not in that kind of shape anymore. I can show you pictures when I was in that kind of shape, but I'm not anymore. So uh, I don't know if, unless you want me to be the guy that just gets killed right away. You know what I mean? Like I can do, I could do that. The guy that just gets hooked by the the axe and he trips down and that's it. But uh, yeah, it. 
<laughs> but I think it's going to be a book exchange because I do have a copy of the last year Atlanteans signed for you. So let's make it a let's make it a bit of a book exchange. So cool. Uh, you you show me yours, I'll show you mine. Yeah. It's a deal. <laughs> <laughs> um I, I do wanna just again before we wrap up, I want I would like people to know, Christian, uh your preferred social media platforms, uh where we can buy your books, um, you know, things like that. Uh about how to get a hold of you and so I'm going to leave uh, where to buy books to um, people's taste. Uh, obviously, they're all on Amazon, but um, there's lots of other platforms out there that you can purchase through. Uh, I'm going to warn you that my computer is down to 6% because I'm sitting in the kitchen. So if I vanish, I have had a wonderful time. Um, uh, on Twitter, I run a thing called Writing Fighting I'm very proud of. Uh, I've got 155 episodes. I have a YouTube channel. No one ever looks at it. It doesn't really bother me because I don't look at it either. But all the writing fightings are also on YouTube. That's Christian Cameron author. Uh, there's some underscores in there. Christian underscore Cameron underscore author. That's YouTube. Twitter is uh, Fokion1, P-H-O-K-I-O-N-1. Uh, I really like Twitter. Uh, it's where people in my business have intelligent conversations. And... Um, and I like to engage with people. And if I make the occasional anti-conservative sneer, uh, actually, most of my military friends are conservatives, and I talk all the time with them, happy to debate, happy to discuss, um, and happy to talk about writing or martial arts. Uh, I'm not famous enough to not answer fan mail. So I do. <laughs> I don't know about I mean, that. There's an argument there. But... <laughs> in, which, in which people will say, oh, God, I love your book, and I ignore them. But that's not in the immediate future. Well, quickly, uh, want to thank you so much for coming on. Steve, quickly, what's the best place to get a hold of you as Steve Talks Books? Uh, Twitter is the best, but it's the place where I get the most interaction is on Twitter. Uh, the other platforms, I just don't get the type of interaction. Uh, I can also be found on uh, page2ing.com if you want to look at the calendar, all the upcoming episodes we have planned, uh, other discussions that go on there. So go come by and visit and talk with us. And just quickly, so that... Miles' uh, computer battery doesn't die. www.plstore.com is my uh, website. Again, Twitter is my preferred social media platform. Yeah, I'm on Facebook and Instagram, but really Twitter is where I, I hang out. DMs are open. You have a question about writing, you want to talk to me, you know, you know, anytime my DMs are open. So I'm coming to you. I'm writing a hard scene right now. I'm going to ask you, hey, Steve, I apologize. I didn't engage you as often as I engaged Paul. And I think that's because Paul and I have uh, so many commonalities. Um, that I find it very easy to talk to Paul, and I apologize. Uh, oh no, but, not at all. No, I loved. It was a great conversation, and I'm, I'm just here to help direct. So uh, it's fine. <laughs> well, thank you, though. Yeah. You guys have been fantastic. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, this is Steve. Ch this is Steve's channel. I just kind of write his coattails. Uh, he oh. does all the hard work. I just kind of show. No, up I don't. I don't do any hang hard work. It's, hang it's all this guy. So um, you know, but once again, Miles, we want to thank you so much for for coming and. Uh, all the best with your release and i'm looking forward to seeing you uh, next month in person and um thank you so much everyone for joining us we hope you've enjoyed and uh we'll talk to you soon <laughs>